Hey, thank you, Kevin. Thank you, worship team, uh, for leading us, and Katie and Carla, all the great things that are going on. It's an honor to be with you all here this morning. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor at Grace Point Church. Hey, you found us in um, uh, part four of a series that we're doing called The Biggest Thought That You Will Ever Think. And my contention in this series is that the biggest thought that you will ever think is the thought you think of when you think of God, because that will drive everything else about how you live your life, how you plan for your future, and what you hope might happen for you at some point down the line. How you see God, in my opinion, is the biggest thing that you can ever, ever think of. And what we've tried to do in this series is you talk about God, it's a huge idea to talk about. I've tried to focus it a little bit on God's gradual self-revelation of himself to us by walking through how the Bible teaches us about God. And so I've started in the Old Testament and started at creation to say God, first of all, reveals himself as a creator. And then I've gone to Moses and the Exodus, that God is not just a creator, but actually a powerful and present deliverer. And he shows up as the redeemer of the people in the book of um, Exodus and all that he does there. And then last week, we were in the Minor Prophets in particular, and if you've ever read or never read the Minor Prophets, they will give you a pass, but basically in the Minor Prophets, there's a lot of yelling and screaming going on in the Minor Prophets, and there's a lot of people who are angry about a lot of things. And one of the main things that's going on there is that we see that God is a God of justice for all today, not just for salvation tomorrow. So we're seeing this movement of God unfold from creator to deliverer to one who's a God of justice and gets angry at injustice today. Now today we are in a point of time in history where Jesus comes onto the scene, but before we get to Jesus, we have to acknowledge that from last Sunday to this Sunday, 400 years has passed. Depending on how many days you've had off school as a parent, it may have felt like that this week, right? That 400 years has passed since the prophets have closed and the revelation of the Old Testament has closed until the opening of the New Testament. And in 400 years, there's a lot that has gone on and that has impacted how Jesus and when Jesus comes to the planet, what he has to deal with. And one of the big things that people, I believe, have lost a perspective on is the answer to this question, a question that um, even if you don't go to church, you probably have heard of this Bible verse, or I would even say if you ever watch a football game like one that might go on later today, you might see in the stands people holding up a verse in the stands, and it would be if you watch TV, what one verse would people hold up in the stands? Look at that, that was wonderful. John 3.16. And even if you've never been in church or don't know the Bible, hey, here you are, glad to have you here. Listen, you know what that verse says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and it goes on. And the question I have, and I think the question that Jesus needed to answer, the people were kind of asking it in this way, and that is this. What exactly does it mean that God so loved the world? What does it actually mean that God so loved the world? This is a huge, huge question. And you may or may not have ever thought about it in these terms, but I want to invite you to think about it this morning because I think Jesus answers it in a way that is very profound for us. So you can look at it from the largest of levels. You kind of take the telescope out, the zoom lens out for a little bit. Does this mean that God is this grandfather in the sky who kind of loves the world in general? The nations of the world are kind of loved by God, kind of like a mother nature kind of love. Or I might like say, I love the outdoors, but I actually don't love when I get stuck in the briar patch, right? I don't actually love that. I just kind of love the outdoors. And in general, is that what we mean? God loves the world. We don't really know what it means, but he loves the world, makes us feel good. If we zoom in a little bit, is it beyond just God loves the, the world? To what is it? Is it that God loves all the people of the world? Is that true? Is that what that means? 
Does God love all the people of the world? And if he does, does he love them all equally? Is this kind of like a principal in an elementary school saying, hey, I love my kids, that's why we do what we do. Well, that's true, you probably love all your kids, but I might ask you, if your child, biological child, is in fourth grade and you are the principal, do you love all the children equally? I might say no, and I wouldn't blame you for that because you have at least one whom you love more than the other because that one is your child, but you love all of the people, kind of, most of the time, but you know in the staff lounge you'll say some things about some kids that you would never say to other parents, even though you might have those certain feelings. Does it mean that God loves all the people of the world? Does he love the terrorists of the world? Does he love the Hitlers? of the world? Does he love the people who are cursing him? Does he love the people who have turned their back on him? Does he love the people who at one time said they were Christians and under persecution recanted and moved away and have nothing to do with Christ anymore? Is that whom he loves? Does he love all the people and does he love them equally? Let's zoom in a little bit further. Does God not just love all the people in the world? Does God love all the people in your world and in my world? Does he love your ex? Does he love your former boss? Does he love the person you used to work with when they did that thing to you? Does he love the people who you struggle to love? Does he love all the people in my world? The people who are critical? The people who wish things were different? Does he love those people who I whisper about or I talk about? Is that whom God loves? Because if he does, that tells me something very, very important. And let me push it a little bit further. What is the nature of this love? If God were to love all the people of the world and all the people in my world, even the people who I may struggle to love, who have offended, betrayed, or ridiculed me, if that's what that means, and the Sunday school answer seems to be yes, right? That seems to be the right answer to say, especially in church when I'm talking, right? Yes, that's probably true, no matter what the implications might be. Here's the further question. Does God love the present version of your enemy, the present version of the traitor, the present version of the terrorist, or does he love what he could be or she could be? Does he love only in the sense of, I will accept you now, but I really have a plan for you to be greater in the future? That's what I will love. I'll love you even more when but I kind of generally put up with you now until you can get things squared away, and then I will love you more then. What is the nature of the love that God has for all people, if indeed he has love for all people? What in the world does it mean? And to zoom that in even further, does God love me and you? And not just the nice-looking version of you this morning, but the ugly side of us that we would prefer no one ever know about, the secret sins, the guilt the shame, the part of us that we wish were different about our past, different about our present, the habits that wear us down, the thoughts that we think about people even in this room or in our family, the things that we wish, we wish no one would ever know. Does God love me, even that part of me? What in the world does it mean that John 3.16, for God so loved the world? What does it mean? People have always asked that question. Not always in those terms, but people have always asked that question. And in the 400 years of silence that existed between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New, people have filled in their answers to that question. And in that period of time, there's been a lot that's happened that has shaped the way that people see God and the way that people see this love of God or lack of love of God. 
And there's two primary things that when Jesus shows up, and we're going to look at what he teaches this morning, but before we get there, when he shows up, he has to address two big issues that happened through the nation of Israel in particular. So between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the first thing that happened is God became distant. The nation of Israel began viewing God as very distant. Let me ask you this. If you went on a date with somebody and they said, hey, that went well, I'll call you or I'll text you, and you wait 400 years before you hear from them again, how do you feel about that relationship? Because this, in a way, is what the nation of Israel has dealt with. It has been 400 years since they have heard from God again. There's been no revelation of God that we're aware of, no prophecy, no prophet, nothing written down. And so for 400 years, there's a growing distance that comes between the nation of Israel and God. And in that space, because the nation of Israel had been through trauma in their past, because they were exiled, they were ripped out of their homes and sold to their enemies. Their leaders were slaughtered. This is their history, and the reason that they were slaughtered and exiled is because they disobeyed God. And so they never want to go through that again. And so what they do when there is silence between them and God is they turn their relationship with God into a performance-based relationship where God is going to be pleased if I obey. If I know nothing else to do in the silence, I will obey. So my relationship with God becomes more about piety than prophecy. It becomes more about a rules-based relationship, a distance, than a personal relationship with a loving creator who is a present redeemer who cares for justice. And so there's a distance that exists. And in that space, I want to follow the rules so we don't blow it again, like the nation of Israel did in the past. The second thing that happens is this, that God was viewed as existing for Israel rather than Israel existing for God. That God was viewed to be the God who was for the nation of Israel, but the nation of Israel forgot the promise of the Abrahamic covenant was that through you, I will bless all nations. All nations of this world will be blessed through you. That Israel, you are to be an out focus, an external focus, that through you, all nations will be blessed. All peoples of the world will come to know me through you. All peoples in this space Because of the distance that existed, these two things happened. God became distant. We need to follow the rules. And secondly, God is now a God of us. He's a God of Israel. And we need to fight for that space because we are, after all, his chosen people. And so in that space, God, through this person of Jesus Christ, boom, lands on the planet. Is born of a virgin Mary and grows and begins to teach, speak about who he is and who God is. And of all the things that Jesus teaches, I can only pick a couple this morning to highlight. So I want to take you to one of the Gospels, we call it, one of the first books in the New Testament. I want to go to Luke, Luke chapter 14. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 14, where we pick up a story that summarizes how Jesus engages with these issues and tries to recalibrate our thinking around what, how should I see the love of God in this space and time, especially with where the nation of Israel and the people who were their spiritual leaders had been. So Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. All right, I'm reading from the New International Version. That Bible in our pew, by the way, is our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. We'd love to have you take that home with you. So here we go, reading from verse 1. 
One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. (laughs) Of course he was. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent because they did not want to become a meme. That's in my version. They knew that if they said anything here, they were going to lose. So to set this up, this, you have to imagine what's happening, and I'm trying to give you the best picture I can of it. There's a home, and the home of a prominent Pharisee would be a larger home, but also a very open home with a courtyard area. And we'll read later, I'm not actually going to read it, but you'll see if you read the entire chapter, that it wasn't just Jesus and a Pharisee and a couple of kids in the house or a couple people around. It's it's not just a dinner party for Jesus and six other people. There were likely dozens of religious leaders here, and there were, we know, there were in the outer courtyard and maybe even slinking into the inner courtyard, people who did not belong in the space of the Pharisees. There were sinners and tax collectors right outside of this gathering right now. The reason is because Jesus drew a crowd. And so Jesus went to a house of a prominent Pharisee. There's dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, I don't know, of people outside and at least dozens inside. And he begins by asking a question. And he asks a question about the law about the relationship here. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And right in front of them is a man who could use healing. This is the struggle. Jesus sets it up immediately. Here's a man who could use a touch of the love of God here, and now in front of us, in the way of that healing is a law, the Sabbath. So while we're here and hanging out, waiting for the dinner rolls to come, let me ask you, Is it lawful or not to heal because we have the issue at hand? This is not a hypothetical. Here he is. To which the Pharisees do nothing. And so Jesus is like, let me solve this one for you. It's going to be all right. Go ahead. You are healed. And look at the end of verse 4. Taking a hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. See, what was right in love violated what was right in the law, and which one are you going to do? Follow the the love of God or the law of God, and what do you do when those two seem to come in conflict? And he presses it further in verse 5. Then he asks them, this becomes hypothetical, but he says to them, listen, if one of you has a son, now he makes it personal. I mean, this was just a man. We didn't even know his name. He wasn't related to any of you. You can be distant and dispassionate from him. He was just a man. Maybe you knew him and you didn't like him. Maybe he said something bad to your family, whatever. But let me ask you about your son for a minute. Let me ask you about your kid. If your kid, or let's say an ox, one of your most valuable tools of your farm trade here, of your agricultural trade, if, if something very important to you falls into the well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. You can almost imagine in the room, you know, a very dynamic and live room, by the way, not quiet, people chatting in the background. You can almost hear when he phrases that question, would you not pull him out? And someone's like, yeah. In fact, hey, I saw Barry do that last week. It was a, it was a Saturday, a Saturday it was a Sabbath, like, but I just turned my, my head. I didn't, I didn't see it. But, man, it was his son. What are you going to do? Man, it's his son who fell in. If it was my son, I would have done the same thing because I love him. I know it's the law, but I, would, I mean, love trumps the law, right? Verse 7. When he noticed how the guests 
picked the places of honor. At the table, he told them this parable. <laughs> Jesus is so offensive to this people. Imagine this, inviting someone to your house and having him pick apart everything that's going on. It's terrible. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat, and then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, hey, move up to a better place, and then you'll be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, what's Jesus saying? What he's saying here is Pharisees, teachers of the law, those who are in the room. This is exactly what you have done. This is exactly what you have done. You have put yourself in the most honored place at the table. You've taken the front seat, haven't you? You, you have set aside the people who should be invited to this table, the feasting table, the place of, of feasting before God here himself. You, you've said, you know what? What's most important is that we are the people of God. We are the chosen people. So I'm going I'm to push you out of the way to get a front seat. I'm sorry, are you suffering from something and it's a Sabbath? I'm going to follow the rules first so that I can be honored by the king because the king would want me to follow the rules first because the law trumps the love of God, right? And for God so loved the world, what does that mean? It means that those who follow the law are the ones that he loves the most. What do you think it means? Those who are the most religious are the ones that he loves. I and mean, what do you think it means? Does not God want purity from us? Does he not want separateness? Does he not want this thing? This is what Jesus pushes out immediately. Because this is exactly what the Pharisees have done. They've taken the best spots at the table. As if it's a table for them. As if God has put a table here and said, I want to invite all the people, but actually the first people I want are the ones who are, who are clean, the ones who are most religious. Those are the ones I want at the front of the table. And that's what the Pharisees and teachers of the law have, have thought. And by the way, that is a temptation of every religious person, not just the Pharisees, of every religious person, of every religious viewpoint, of every branch of religion, to separate ourselves and say, no, we need to keep ourselves in the right spot. We need to keep ourselves here because we want the favor of the one that we worship. So he goes on. He says to his host, verse 12, See, when you give a luncheon or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. And you don't want to eat their food. And so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you will be unclean, is what they hear. You don't invite those people because it's against the law to associate with people like that. It is. It's just against the law to have people like that at your banquet, your table. You can't do that. But he changes the narrative. He said, and you will be blessed. Why? Because all peoples of this world will be blessed through you. All peoples of this world will be blessed through you. All of the blind, all of the sick, all of the poor, all who are far from will be blessed through you. You will be a blessing when you invite all who are not here. Because this is the way that the kingdom of God works. He says, although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And one of them, verse 15, <laughs> sitting at the table, heard him say this, and he said to Jesus, wow, well, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Yeah, rightly so. Jesus continues, verse 16. 
A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. And the first one said, Well, I just bought a field and I got to go see it. Uh, you just excuse me if you don't mind. Another one, verse 19. Hey, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. It's a lot of oxen. And I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And another one said, I just got married, so you know what happens there. I just, you know, I just can't come right now. And verse 21, the servant came back, reported this to his master, and the owner of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, the people who otherwise would have no seat at this table. These are all the unclean. These are all the people who don't deserve to be here. These are all the people who the Jews did not think were included when they heard that God so loved the world. The world was their world. The world was them. The world was their world of religion. The world was their piety. The world was their cleanliness. The world was their safety and their comfort and their desire, rightly placed, to honor God. But they forgot, in these 400 years of silence, that they existed not for themselves. They never existed for themselves. But they existed to be a blessing to all people. All people. What Jesus introduced to these people is so revolutionary that his teaching is not found in any, any Jewish literature at the time. What Jesus is teaching is unparalleled in any contemporary Jewish literature. And here's what Jesus is ultimately saying. that For God so loved the world, Jesus teaches us that God so loved the world means God so loved the sinners. Let me translate this for you. God so loved the world isn't just the world that I spend the most time in. It isn't the world where I feel the most comfortable. It isn't the world of people who don't, you know, smoke, drink, curse, or go with girls who do, whatever those phrases are, right? It is the world. It is, it is everyone in the world that, that of all people that Jesus came to save, and when God so loved the world, he loves sinners. Yes, he loves the Hitlers of the world. Yes, he loves the terrorists of the world. Yes, he loves your ex more than you do, and maybe more than you ever will, and I understand that. And yes, he loves those whom you hate right now, and I get that too. But this is the hard message of Jesus, that he came to invite to the banquet table, to the space there, sinners. That God, God loves sinners. The unclean who previously were not allowed at this table, no. God loves them. And Jesus came to say, I know we've been quiet for about 400 years. Somewhere along the line, you thought that you've just had to obey the rules and we've become distant. I want to step back into the space and remind you, we've always been in the business of loving the sinner. Jesus goes on, verse 22. The servant responds to him. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered here has been done, but there's still room. And the master told the servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you that none of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. And you know who's standing right outside their house right now where Jesus is having this? All the unclean who would never be invited into the Pharisee's house. It could not get more pressing and personal than it is right there. 
that Jesus is saying to these people around the table, you have wanted my presence here because you think that God has come down here to be with you. The most religious among you need to realize the people who you put outside your gates, the people who you think are no longer available or can't, can't come, people who do not have access because of our bigotry, because of our pride, because of our problems, those are the people that get invited because God has come to save sinners. And the love of God means that I love sinners. It's a crazy concept. It is unparalleled in Jewish literature at the time. Jesus goes on in chapter 15 of Luke. We're not going to read it. I'm just going to tell you because you know some of the story. But he goes on, and it's in the context of Luke 14 that Luke 15 comes about. And in there he tells three, three other stories. One is a parable of the lost sheep, where the shepherd goes out to find the one. The 99 stay here, but the one, the shepherd goes out to find the one. Then he tells the story right behind that, where there were 10 lost coins, and the, the woman lost one, and she searched the whole house, turned it upside down to try to find the one. And, and then finally, the story that many of you know, the prodigal son, that now one of two sons is missing, and the one son goes off to live, quote-unquote, in the world, and spends all of the father's inheritance, and basically acts like as if he would prefer that the father wasn't around. And at the end of that story, if you remember that story, what happens to the father, the, the father takes on an incredibly shameful act of running, running to his sinner son, running to his son who's rejected him, throwing up his garments, showing his legs, and, and running. That is unheard of. Totally unheard of. Why would he do that? Because God loves sinners. It's a message struck so hard against the fabric of what the religion taught at the time, so hard against the fabric of our hearts that want our religion to be safe, want our worlds to be clean, want to know who our kids are hanging out with and what their futures will hold, and want to make sure that our place is secure. It is a word that strikes so hard against that. No, 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 God didn't come for just for you or just for me, that we may be a blessing to all. Earlier, it reminds us of the story of the Good Samaritan. Where at the end of that story, the Samaritan says to the owner of the inn, he says this, whatever he needs, charge it to me. Whatever he needs, charge it to me. I know the religious people should have taken care of the guy who was beat up, but listen, whatever he needs, charge it to me. And this is what God is saying through Jesus. These are Jesus' stories over and over and over and over and over again. The God soul of the world means whatever you need, charge it to me. Because you cannot overcharge this account. You cannot overcharge this account. You cannot ask me for something that I cannot give to you. You cannot be so deep in sin that I cannot forgive you. You cannot be so far gone that I cannot find the grace to give to you because God loves sinners. That's what God so loved the world means. It's a powerful, powerful picture of what Jesus has come to do. The question is why? Why would God so love the world this much? We get a little bit of a clue, and part of the clue is in the way Jesus told the story in Luke 14. Remember at the beginning of his interaction with the Pharisees, he said to them, first of all, uh, if there's a man with dropsy right here in front of you, a man who needs healing. Would you heal him? Silence. Then he turns it personally and said, well, let me ask you, what if it was your kid? Would you do it then? What's he appealing to? He's appealing to the love of a parent. He's appealing to the love of a father. And the instinctive answer is, of course I would Here's what we know happens in the scriptures, that in the Old Testament, the word father is used about 11 times to refer to God in a way of being a present deliverer. Jesus, when he comes, he uses the term father 
140 times. When he's speaking personally to his father in prayer. That Jesus is giving the picture to the world, to the watching world. My, my father, our father, we have one father. We have one father. If we had two fathers, then I might say my father might not love you the way he loves me. But if we have one father, if we all came from one father, if we all were created by one God, if we are all have one father, that father loves this much. And I want to remind you by praying over and over and over again, introducing you, reintroducing you to the love of a father. The love of the father says... Charge it to me. Charge it to me. If you're in trouble, I'm here for you. You will never exhaust the reaches of the love of the Father. You can never out that love. Jesus steps in to say, if you want to know who God is, if you've lost that picture, that view of who God is, God is here for the sinner, for the blind, for the poor, for the weak. And he loves him so much, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, on the cross, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but have everlasting life. That is the picture of God in the New Testament. That is the picture of God through Jesus. A new reminder that this is the heart of the Father. This past weekend, um, there's about 40 people who were not here last week, who many of whom are here this week. And that, that is our um, senior high and junior high student population. Right? They went away on a retreat, had a good time, enjoyed it, I believe, and learned quite a bit about uh, themselves and about God during that time. And uh, I've, asked, I've asked Devin Clemmer to come talk to us about that, um, about that, uh, that time. And so, Devin, why don't you come on up here? And the reason we're having Devin come up is um, because I think Devin's great. Pretty much the bottom line. Hey, Devin, welcome. There we go. This is Devin. How about Devin? Can we... Thanks for coming. Last weekend, the um, retreat I heard was really quite incredible and spoke to some of these issues about um, the cross and Jesus' work and all that. But can you tell us, Devin, um, about the speaker and how that went? Because there was a speaker there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But kind of could you give us your impressions of, um, you know, the the speaker and how things went there Saturday night especially? Yeah, um, it was an incredible weekend, uh, to say the least. Um, the speaker, his name was Sam Bott. Um, he was uh, speaking over the whole weekend as to um, what, is, what are you putting as the greatest thing in your life? What are you putting ahead, um, ahead, of, um, ahead of God um, that is getting in the way of your faith? Um, and what he spoke to um, Saturday night was um, really powerful. He uh, went from the... Uh, he talked about the crucifixion and how Jesus went through everything. He went through the flogging. He went through carrying his cross to his own to his own death. Um, how he went, how he loved us so much. Um, um, it's, it was just incredible the way he portrayed the reality of what we believe in. How Jesus loved us so much um, to go on that cross and die for us, and it really struck struck a lot of us yeah. on the trip. Um, really hard, like a, like a ton of bricks. Um, we weren't expecting it, we weren't anticipating it, um, but the reality of what we live uh, and believe um, that Jesus went to the cross for us and, and died for us was something that was really powerful that the speaker brought out and really portrayed that, 
amazing reality for yeah. us. How did that? How did that leave you? Like as you processed that, what kind of impression did that have on you or others in your trip? I mean, you talked a little bit about it just now, but it was a deep thing there. Um, so either what, how did that impress on you, or, or you know, going forward, how do you think this will impact you? Yeah, it was. It was a really powerful moment, um, not just for me. Um, what the speaker did, he sent us to the side of the room. He said, whoever wants to believe for the first time, whoever wants to put their faith in Jesus Christ, go to the side of the room um, and, and put your faith in Jesus Christ and make that commitment. Um, and then he also said, um, anyone who wants to recommit their lives to Christ, go to the side of the room. Um, it was really amazing to see when we opened our eyes, when he told us to open our eyes and go to the side of the room, you could see everyone. It would probably be the majority of us um, in, this, in, this, in the congregation right now off to the side um, saying that I'm going to commit my life to Christ it was a really powerful and it, in, really impressive for me to see um, that this is real. This is the reality that we live in, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and he did come for us. Um, it was really powerful, really powerful for, for me personally, but also, I think, for a lot of other people on the trip. Yeah, I heard great things about it, for sure. Um, how, there were about 35 who went, yeah, and a majority had this reaction. I mean, we had yeah. that, yeah. Anything else you want to say about that trip? Ask, ask us about it. Yeah. Um, just ask us about it. it. There's so much I could say about this trip, um, how much it put an impression on me, but also there was 300 other people about there, and the majority of them decided to commit their lives to Christ, either for the first time or for, for another time, just saying that I'm going to believe, believe in God and put my put my life towards, towards him, which is pretty incredible. So just ask us, ask any of us about it, and we'll be happy to talk yeah. about more of the weekend and what all happened and how it impacted all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Devin, thank you very much for coming up here. really appreciate you, man. Thank you. Can we thank Devin? Because it's not just a story, right? It's not just a Sunday school story. Jesus actually came to tell us God loves you so much that he came to love sinners, all of us. And it expands our world in a ridiculous way. So this morning, we have the chance to share in communion together. And that communion, it's a beautiful time this morning to do that. We get to stop for a minute and say, I'm about to, you're, you are, if you're following Jesus Christ, we invite you to participate with us, but you're, you're about to um, receive down your aisle, whatever, the, the bread and the cup together, a reminder that Jesus came and he, he died. His body was broken for you. He died in your place because this is what God does. He loves sinners. And so in the spirit of, 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 of who God is and what he's teaching us, we, we want to have this moment this morning, we want to invite you as well 
to think, is there something I need to renew? Is there, is there something I need to renew in my own heart and mind? Is there a, is there a view of God that I've kind of gotten away from? Do I feel like maybe the Israelites kind of been distant and I see God from a distance and I kind of forget that he actually loves sinners and I've been unforgiving? I, I, I've been impatient. I've been unable or unwilling to see the people who work with me or for me or in my school who actually be recipients of God's grace. I've been unwilling and able to see that. I've forgotten the depth of my own sin and I've forgotten that the Father... Charge at his account. There's no expense that he can't. I've forgotten that. So if you're in that space, you're like, you know, I, I, need a, I need a renewal. Like God, pump some life back into me again that I can see again the people around me who need to feel and see the love of God. I'm going to invite you this morning after we're done to respond to that by coming to pray with some of our elders and deacons, part of our lead team, just to say, listen, I want to get back on that track. If you're in a space where you're trying to figure out if Jesus is who he says he is, I'm going to invite you this morning when we dismiss here to come up and pray with us about that and talk about that and say, hey, I need to know more. I want to see more. Is this who God says he is? Is this Jesus real? We want to talk with you about that this morning. So in light of that, we're going to take communion uh, now. And as the ushers are coming forward now and the worship team, you're welcome to come on up uh, while I set this up here and just kind of frame that up. But um, for those who may not know, the communion we do here as one of two ordinances, we call it, of the church. But communion is a time where we get to share in a moment together as people who remember Jesus' death on the cross. It goes back all the way to... Um, the upper room goes back to the time where, where the disciples were with Jesus and he was talking with them about his future and what could be. And He said, listen, take this bread and take this cup. This will be my body broken for you. So every time you take it, remember this moment, the night before he was to be betrayed. And so as we take it this morning, we remember this moment and we remember as we eat together. Yeah, yeah Jesus came for sinners. <laughs> And I'm, I'm one of those people. Jesus came, and I'm one of those. Jesus came, and I'm one of those. So I'd like to pray for us as we prepare to take communion, and then we'll distribute it and take it. <coughs> Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to share in communion together this morning and to remember to come around the cross of Christ again, to remember that Jesus came to teach us and to show us again that God so loved the world it means that God loves sinners. God loves us all. God loves those who are outside of the courtyard, those who are not able to have access to the cleaner places of this world. God loves those people that he sent his son to die in that space. And so I pray that you would renew in us this vision of what it could mean for us as moms and dads, as uh, children, as young adults, as middle-aged men and women, as uh, those in our sunset years figuring out how we leave a legacy and what that means to be an incredible example of the next generation, that we could live that gospel in a powerful way. So I pray that you'd renew that space in us, even as we take this communion to remember who your son is and what he's done for us. And so I pray that as we take this communion together, it'd be a great reminder of what you've done for us. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name.